This is Brian Panish from the legal podcast, Get in the Game. Hope you like what you're hearing. And remember, sharing is caring. Subscribe if you like it. Share with others. But don't forget, get in the game. Uh, my name's Chris Bridges. I'm a uh, data scientist at Jury Analyst, and today I'm joined by Brian Beckham from BB Attorneys. He's been voted a Texas Super Lawyer 14 years in a row, which is every single year he's been eligible. Also a board-certified expert in personal injury trial law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization, which is a recognition shared by less than 2% of lawyers. This is very prestigious. Um, Brian's obtained hundreds of millions of dollars for his clients. Uh, he and his law firm, BB Attorneys, have obtained record set settling settlements uh, and verdicts in a wide variety of legal, significant legal cases. Now, the main, well, I personally have two main questions or two main topics I'd like to broach with you today, Brian. Um, first, you do seem to have a lot of uh, maritime law in your back, uh, in your background. For instance, uh, there's a, obviously a big case with Maersk, which got turned into the movie Captain Phillips. Um, the other thing, and we can start with that, but the other thing I'm also interested in is uh, your educational background seems a little, from my perspective, a little different to a typical lawyer. Like you um, actually majored in computer science and philosophy, I believe it was. Um, let's, and you know, coming from jury analyst where we are doing a lot of data science kind of stuff to see if we can you know, find out how much jurors believe the case is worth, that sort of thing. Wondering if there's maybe a link there, but let's start off with, I guess, the um, with the maritime law. Like, how did you kind of get into that area to begin with? That's a good question, Chris. So, uh, you know, I went to Texas A&M University for undergraduate, but I went to the I went to law school at the University of Texas. And my second year in law school, there was a professor named David Robertson, uh, who's now deceased. But I heard the I heard that he had a great reputation as just being a great teacher. And I didn't even really care about what the topic he was teaching was, but it turned out it was admiralty law. And the, his reputation was correct. He was a phenomenal teacher. I found the subject completely fascinating. I mean, when you're talking about piracy and the age of sail and amazing things happening out in the ocean and the age of discovery and all that stuff, and maritime law goes back, literally goes back thousands of years. I just found it totally fascinating, but never had any intention at all of practicing Admiralty or maritime law until I went off and started working as a lawyer, a trial lawyer on the plaintiff side, representing injured people. And I happened to work for somebody that had a maritime practice. And so it was pure luck to be completely honest with you. And, but I love the work for a lot of different reasons. And so I started slowly developing this reputation of being a maritime lawyer. And the, and the thing about maritime law, like, some of your viewers or listeners may know is it's a lot different from land-based law. I mean, there's a lot of different complications to it. There's traps you can get into. There's things called limitations of liability proceedings, which are super complicated. The jurisdiction, like in other words, where you file the case can be exceedingly complex. So for instance, anybody that's listening, you want to hear a good law school question or a law exam question, where do you file a case where, the plaintiffs live in nine different states. The company is based in three different states. The incident happened off the coast of East Africa. The medical treatment was in Europe. 
uh, the shipping company, one of them is based in, I mean, like, where do you file that case? Where, where do you even, what court even hears that case? So it was kind of fortuitous, frankly, early on, but <clears throat> I, I just really loved the work because it was such an intellectual challenge. Plus, you know, frankly, two weeks ago, I was in the port of Los Angeles on a 300 foot container ship doing an investigation. And that's, that's kind of cool, man. I mean, it's, it's fun to do. So that's, that's about half of my practice at this point. And there's not many lawyers in the country that do maritime law. There never has been, and it's even fewer now. So, so the maritime bar, the group of lawyers that do that is, is pretty small. Uh, it's pretty competitive, but we generally get along because we see each other again and again, and it's just fascinating work. So that's kind of how I got into maritime law, Chris. Well, that's yeah, really interesting. I can imagine based on, based on what you've said as well, it sounds like, every case is probably going to be very, very unique. I can't begin yeah. to imagine there's, apart from it happens on the ocean, there's probably not too much in common between these cases. So as you kind of said, it's going to be an intellectual challenge every new, every case you take on because it's something brand new every time. And it's not just the ocean, by the way. It's not just the ocean. People, people forget about, we have a whole river system in the United States, up and down the Mississippi River, along the inland coast. Uh, there's a lot of different places on certain lakes, like certain lakes would qualify for a maritime case. So uh, probably my second biggest case ever happened right outside of uh, Madison, Illinois, off of the Mississippi River. So it's we uh, in the maritime bar, we call ocean cases. We call those blue water cases. And then the ones that happen on the rivers and stuff like that, we call them brown water cases because when you're in the ocean it's typically blue when you're out there and when you're in the mississippi river where anybody from texas knows <laughs> the gulf of mexico ain't that blue frankly it's more brown so but yeah, it's, yeah. I, I do blue and brown water cases so uh super interesting stuff yeah 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 for sure and also going going back you also said how the intent your intention was wasn't really to get into maritime law you kind of just found heard about a teacher who has had an amazing reputation kind of for want of a better term almost fell into this and then found out that you really loved it for all the like statistics and science in, that i'm doing in my career i do think that there is a certain almost serendipity in how we kind of get into these places like a lot of the time it doesn't feel intentional but it kind of feels right when we get there if that makes sense if that's you know, like, okay. i having a computer science and philosophy degree. And I would agree with what she said hundred percent at the time. I didn't have any grand plan to study computer science and philosophy and then become a lawyer. Like that was not my plan at all. Matter of fact, I didn't even have a plan going to college to study computers. <clears throat> I just liked them. I thought they were interesting. It was the early nineties. I had one of the first email addresses in college. Philosophy has always been something that's kind of excited me. And so there was no grand plan. It was just something I was interested in. And I tell you what, Chris, and I mean, I think I'm anticipating a, one of the questions you may ask is having a degree in computer science and philosophy is the best possible preparation I could have ever had for practicing what kind of law I do today for a lot of reasons. One of which is the kind of stuff you do, big data, data analytics, being technically competent, being able to market online, 
knowing when you're talking to uh, somebody that just downloaded a phone of somebody that was on Facebook while they're driving an 18 wheeler, knowing when they're BSing you and when they're not. So it's like you said, totally serendipitous, but it's turned out to be, I wouldn't trade my education really for anything. Yeah. You, and I completely agree, but my background very different to yours, but I've kind of fallen to where I am. I enjoy it very much. And you absolutely did read my mind in terms of my next question. Yeah. Um, now, I guess more, more senior lawyers who might be listening to this probably remember and maybe still do it in, but in the, the practice may be very, or was very kind of um, manual, lots of paper, you know, hard copies of everything. Technology has obviously changed a lot. You know, just, even just, you know, electro electronically signing documents and, as you kind of said, moving from maybe a small in-person focus group up to big data now. Um, given we're kind of at this age now where, for want of a better term, Moneyball is kind of becoming a, a thing in trial law where we want to find out, are there thing, you know, is there information that's being missed that a jury is going to think about, but trial lawyers are just going to overlook because it doesn't, it's not obvious to them. And we can now kind of find that information out this seems to have become like a, or seems to be the big kind of forward step in terms of technology and science coming into law. Um, I guess I kind of have two questions coming from here. Firstly, do you, uh, what is your experience with kind of like, I guess, going from say smaller focus groups up to anything bigger from that? And where can you, where do you think you might see it going in the future as well? Two great questions, two, two really good questions. So a question one is how you do focus groups and how, how data analytics and big data and processing power and stuff like that has made focus groups even, uh, even more common. And so the nice thing about focus groups and the kind of data analytics that, that you guys do, Chris, is when I started doing focus groups probably 10 years ago, when I say... I was doing focus groups before that, but I started running my own focus groups about 10 years ago. So where mm -hmm. I was doing at least a focus group a month, a lot like 12, 13, 14 a year. And what I found was, I, you know, and this is for the senior lawyers, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how many times you've been to trial, there's, you have blind spots, period. We all do. I have blind spots. You have blind spots. We all have blind spots. And, and by definition, a blind spot, you don't know you have it. Because you're blind <laughs> to that spot, right? And so I remember the first couple of focus groups that I was putting on. We literally put on focus groups in rear end crashes where the person is stopped at a stoplight, gets hit in the back. And people start saying, well, was that, did that person have a back injury before? Did they stop suddenly? They started trying to blame the plaintiff, which is a psychological phenomenon called negative attribution bias which is a huge deal in plaintiff's law because essentially if something bad happens to somebody, we all have this psychological, uh, we're hardwired to say, well, that wouldn't happen to me because I would have done something different, in other words. And so what it, what it taught me, Chris, really quickly was, hey, I'm a lawyer, but I don't know how regular people think about a lot of things. I, I just don't because it's been either trained out of me or trained into me, however you want to look at it. And so I look at the world in a certain way through a certain frame of reference. It's not the same way that normal people look at it. As much as I like to think of myself as a normal Joe who's wearing cowboy boots and drinking beer with my buddies, I got this lawyer 
part of my brain that creates blind spots. And so focus groups and data analytics, what do they really do? What's the big part of that is it tells you what your blind spots are. It tells you what's maybe stuff that's good about your case that you didn't realize and stuff that's bad about your case that you didn't realize. And so to me, that's always been, since we've been doing this, the, the biggest benefit that the future of uh, this kind of data analytics and focus groups and, and, and AI and big data and stuff like that in, in the uh, trial bar is coming. It's already here. There was an article that came out this week talking about how they're going to use an AI in a criminal case hmm. uh, to evaluate some questions and some answers. They're calling it like an AI lawyer. It's not an AI it's not even sure. close to an AI but you know they'd like to have the clickbait headlines. But the point is, there's going to be an artificial intelligence participating in a trial, so it's it's here. And the question about where it goes is, who the heck knows? It's not going anywhere. Like focus groups and data analytics, they're not going anywhere because they're so important. Like sometimes I turn to my partner and I laugh when we do a focus group, and I'm like, this is like cheating on. Like, you know, ahead of time, seriously, you know, ahead of time, you do four or five focus groups in a case, you're going to, you know what people think about these things in general. Now, does that mean you're going to win every time? Of course not. But boy, you want to talk about putting your thumb on the scale. I actually think in any significant case, a lawyer is committing malpractice if they don't do some sort of data analytics, some sort of focus group. If you're not doing that, you're not doing your job. Now, you know, the big question to me, Chris, is we've got all this remote stuff going on right now. We were talking right before the show about how I think this is awesome. I think people that are saying we need to go to the office Monday through Friday for eight hours a day and sit there behind a desk or a cubicle. I think those people are insane. Those days are gone. The days of having to go down to court and wait for five hours with 30 other lawyers who are charging $500 an hour so a judge can call you and you can stand up for a five-minute hearing, those days need to be gone because they're a complete and total waste of client time and money. But I'm still holding on to in-person jury trials. And so I think in-person jury trials are here to stay. I think there's a component of being in person where you, you get a better sense of uh, whether somebody's telling the truth or not by their body language and things like that. I think those are here to stay, uh, but there's going to be more trials that are going to be uh, remote or virtual or whatever you want to call them. And that necessarily involves being more technically savvy. So I don't know what the future is going to hold. I tell people this all the time. I don't know what the future is going to hold. I just know that the way we used to do it, is not going to be the way we do it in the future. That, that I do. Yeah. Cool. Great. I guess following up on kind of like the very last thing you said, I don't know what the future is going to hold. Do you have a wish list of what you think the future might hold? Now, I can think of one thing that I um, would like the future to hold. I think that trial lawyers especially could do with more training. And this could be at, probably at law school and more training in either critical thinking or statistics so that they can understand and critically kind of what's the word? critically judge um, kind of the numbers that are coming out from say the work that jury analyst does 
or the focus groups are coming out with, rather than simply, well, potentially being sold snake oil, really. There's a lot of pseudoscience on the market, for sure. And in my experience, there's um, a lot of lawyers just don't have the training in statistics to be able to recognize that. So I guess that would kind of be my wish for the future in terms of critical statistical thinking. But what what are your thoughts? I, my two my two wishes, I, and I, by the way, I think that's a that's a really good thing to teach. It's a good thing for people to learn. I worry that political science majors maybe not want to take a bunch of statistic and math classes. You know, I, I would be excited about that, but but I'm a little weird about as far as that goes. For me, the two the, the probably the two biggest things are jury trials are too long; they need to be faster, and you know, I've talked to, I've got buddies that are federal judges that are like, well, you guys hire 10 experts. How, how do we make these? And I'm like, we hire 10 experts because you federal judges make these rulings that require us to have an expert on every damn issue. And so I, I think I'd like jury trials to be shorter. I think there's one thing you'll hear from jurors consistently, and I think you probably heard this, Chris, is why they keep saying the same thing again and again. We got it. We got it. Lawyers do that because they're so worried that some appellate judge who was a good politician, so he's been elected to the appellate bench, is going to come down and second guess what the jury did, even though that judge didn't sit in there for the two-week trial and say, you didn't have enough evidence to prove this. And I'm smarter than all 12 jurors and all the lawyers and the judge, the trial judge. I know better, and so I'm going to overturn your verdict because I'm smarter than everybody else. And in reality, they're not most of the time. So we get we get worried as trial lawyers that we're not going to have a quote record. And so the cases end up taking two or three times longer than they should. That's one wish. The other wish is I wish we were a little bit more honest. Uh, that the system would allow us to be a little bit more honest about what's really going on. OK, so let me give you an example of that. My partner literally started a trial against a huge national transportation company today. That company has already been found negligent, grossly negligent in three different cases. We're trying to case the fourth time. That company's not going to pay a penny for a settlement. It's not the company that's the problem. It's their insurance companies. But guess what? We're not allowed to tell the jury that. Now, most people that sit on juries kind of suspect that there's insurance companies behind the scenes making these decisions. But I'm here to tell people, I wish everybody knew that because that's the truth. The truth is most of the time when cases don't settle, the reason is because an insurance, some nerd insurance company accountant is trying to make his numbers. And so they don't offer a reasonable amount of money. You hear all this stuff about frivolous lawsuits. The real truth of the matter is that is all almost a hundred percent cause by insurance companies trying to save a few nickels. So I, I wish we could, in Louisiana, by the way, it's not like this. Now, Louisiana is under the Napoleonic Code, but in Louisiana, when you sue when you sue somebody that hits you with their car, a lot of people think, oh, this old lady hit me with my car and you're gonna sue this old lady? You're suing this old lady? How could you sue an old lady? They don't realize you're not suing the old lady. You're suing her insurance company that this old lady has paid thousands of dollars to over the year to protect her from just this very situation, right? And in Louisiana, 
you can sue the insurance company directly. And so the jurors know it ain't the old lady that's being unreasonable. It's, it's State Farm that's being unreasonable or AIG that's being unreasonable. So I wish we were able to be a little bit more honest about that with the jury. Now, of course, the reason the insurance companies don't want you to know that they're behind all the decision-making is because people generally dislike insurance companies for the very reason we're talking about. So th those would be, those would be my two big wishes. In the courtroom, we rely on compelling evidence often rooted in the detail work of scientists. That's why I'm introducing science of justice. This podcast by Jury Analyst isn't just legal chatter. It's a deep dive into law and science using real science, real data, and real time. The team at Science of Justice stands for integrity. They break down complex scientific principles to serve those wronged or injured, making it accessible for lawyers and other justice seekers. So now, let's really up your game and embrace some real evidence. Say goodbye to following the herd and start practicing law based on facts. You got to check out now the Science of Justice podcast.